if you miss one day. All right. If you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you again and welcome the college students. It's always exciting to see you guys back in town and with us this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. If you are visiting with us, I want to let you know, especially since Mr. Al mentioned the pastoral search team, my name is Kevin. I'm an associate pastor here at Cross Point, and I am now filling the preacher, preaching role under the leadership of the elders. And as of last Sunday, we finished a study in Colossians, and this morning we will beginning, uh, begin a study in the Minor Prophets. And, uh, I've discussed this with the elders, and they thought this was a, would be a great study for us. And so we will begin with the book of Hosea. But just, we want to set the stage a little bit on the minor prophets. Sometimes they can be confusing. They're minor prophets, so does that mean they're not important? Uh, you know, they're not a big deal. What, what does it mean? They're minor prophets. And they're called minor prophets not because they're not a big deal, not because they were even less influential, but simply because the books are shorter. The minor prophets range from 14 chapters to just one chapter, while the major prophets, the major prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then sometimes we put Daniel in that group. While Daniel's a shorter book and includes much more apocalyptic literature, sometimes we'll include him there. But those books range from 48 to 66 chapters, excluding the book of Daniel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel range from 48 to 66 chapters. So the reason we call them minor prophets is not because they're not good prophets or anything or less important or even less influential, but simply because they were shorter, simply because they were they were shorter. Now, I want to give you some context in which the minor prophets are coming. They receive their prophecy and they're giving these messages. We're not going to travel deep into it, but suffice it to know that these were turbulent times in the history of Israel. Kings and even priests had rejected God's law. The kingship is described by one author as usurpation by assassination. And so the kingship is being gained by some people coming in, killing a king, and then taking the throne. Which is not at all to do with God's covenant of Israel, with Israel. And politically, Israel was trusting in other nations, Assyria, Egypt, and eventually Babylon. Israel would try to partner with to gain power and to protect themselves. Spiritually, Israel was trusting in Baal, the god of the Canaanites, the god of the foreign nations. And so Israel, in every way that they could, was rejecting the covenant that God had made with them. Now, to think about the covenant God made with them, we would look at this in Leviticus chapter 26. And we're not going to go into that. It's a very long chapter, but let me explain just a little bit to you about what this covenant was about. God came to the people of Israel and he said, I want to enter into a relationship with you. He brought them, made them his people and said, here's the agreement. I will bless you. I will give you all that you need. I will give you the agriculture. I will give you protection from the, your foreign enemies. Everything that you need and your stipulations, you just must obey me. Obey me. But if you don't obey me, I will take away the fruitfulness in your land. The people around you, the surrounding nations, will hit you from every side. And eventually, your land will be desolate. I will send you to other nations. This will be the result if you don't obey me. This is the covenant. This is the agreement. Very simple. Obey me, I will bless you. Disobey me, I will curse you. This was the covenant agreement. 
And the prophets come in, and if you were with us a little while back, we went through the book of Amos one Sunday, and I told those who were here, it said the prophets were like covenant watchdogs. And so Israel began to steer away from their covenant with God to be disobedient, and God would send these prophets to say, you're not being obedient, you're not abiding by the covenant. And they would use very shocking language sometimes because what Israel was doing was very evil. And the prophets would come, he would send them to say, repent of your ways. God would say, repent of your ways, and I will restore you. The message of the prophets is mainly, repent, God wants to restore you to himself. This is their message. Hosea is a little bit unique, though, isn't it? Many of the prophets begin with, the Lord said, go say this. But the book of Hosea is going to be, the Lord said, go do this. And so, I would invite you to stand with me, and we're going to read in the book of Hosea. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. That's chapter 1, and it's basically a summary of the entire book of Hosea, setting the stage of everything that's going to happen. It reads, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. For I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived again and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up for the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. You may be seated. Lord, we thank you for the message of Hosea. God, we praise you. Lord, that you forgive us of our sins. That we are Gomer, yet you come to us and you say, I will bring you back. I will restore you. We thank you. I pray that you would help us to see this message this morning, to see how it relates to our own lives, to see how we fit in this story. Lord, may we be greatly humbled by your mercies, that you would fill this time, that you would fill this place with your spirit, Lord, so that we may hear your word and we may be transformed. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, if you're looking for baby names, Hosea is not the book to go to, obviously. But... Let me give you the timeline of Hosea's ministry. He's approximately 760 B.C. to 722. If you recall, 722 is the time period when Israel will be utterly destroyed and led away to Assyria. 
So the context of Hosea's ministry is 40 years of watching God's people grow closer and closer to judgment. And his audience, let me remind you that the, uh, Israel and Judah have split at this time. Judah's in the south, Israel's in the north. Hosea is one of the earliest minor prophets, and he comes and he's prophesying to the nation of Israel, not to the nation of Judah. This is the message he is giving to them. Now, I do want to provide you just a couple of scenarios. Whether you know it or not, sometimes we think about the book of Hosea and we just say, oh, he met, went and married a prostitute. It's as simple as that. And then they had children. And, and it just it's simple. But there actually are several views on how this book works out among very conservative scholars. So it's not that I'm liberal and I'm giving you some of the li- liberal scholars' views. It's that even conservative evangelicals have several views on how this kind of plays out. And I just want to give you two of these And then I'm going to tell you, and I'll go ahead and tell you now, regardless of how you see the text working out, the main point of Hosea is God's people are like a marriage partner committed to unfaithfulness. Only his covenant faithfulness can restore the relationship. So regardless of which view you take here, the main point is still the same. God's people are like an unfaithful marriage partner, and only God's covenant faithfulness can restore things. But here are just a couple of the scenarios. If you'll take your notes out of your folder, if you don't have those out already, those will be very helpful during this time. Scenario one, Gomer was not an adulteress when Hosea married her. It was simply that God told Hosea to go marry a woman and she would become an adulteress later. Her, her adultery came out after their marriage. Their first child, Jezreel, was born to Hosea. And as you'll notice in the text, it says specifically that Gomer conceived and bore Hosea a son. In those first verses concerning Jezreel, it says this son was born to Hosea as the father. However, the next two children do not have Hosea named as the father. It simply says that she bore children, these two children. And so some commentators will try to say that these are not Hosea's sons, that this is where Gomer's adultery comes out, that these next two children are children of adultery. That's a very popular popular view, very popular view. You'll see that in many of your study Bibles. One of the problems with that view is that there's not in the Hebrew enough in the text to be able to say that these are not Hosea's children. All it simply says is these children were born to Gomer, and it doesn't say that they're not Hosea's children. There's just not enough there to be able to say for sure that these aren't Hosea's. They're taking some liberties there. Scenario two, Gomer was an adulteress when Hosea married her. This takes the first verses very explicit. It says, God says to Hosea, go marry a woman of whoredom. Sorry for the language. As I said before, the prophets are very explicit, very shocking in their language. This is not mine. This is the Lord's. But she was an adulteress when Hosea married her. And she already had children when he married her. And this is why the Hebrew text most literally could be translated And the Lord said to Hosea, go take a wife of fornications and children of fornications. Many of your Bibles will say, have children of fornications, as if it's a future tense, but the Hebrew is actually just a present. Go take a wife of fornications and children of fornications. In other words, when Hosea takes this woman to himself, he's also taking her children to himself. And this view would make great sense when it comes to Hosea chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. How many daughters did Hosea, or Gomer's, and those three children, how many daughters were there? There was just one. 
But here we have brothers and sisters saying to other brothers and sisters, plural, you are our people. And so you have a plural, plural things there that only make sense if there are multiple sisters. And so scenario two is the one that I have landed on. Please don't consider me a heretic if you think it's otherwise. Like I said, regardless, the main point of the passage is God's people are like a marriage partner committed to unfaithfulness. And only his covenant faithfulness can restore the relationship. And so let's get into the text to our main points. Immediately, immediately in the first part of the text, we, we must recognize that Hosea's marriage and family life is to correspond directly with God's relationship to his people. Again, it says, when the Lord first spoke to, through, through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of Fordham and have children of Fordham. So the message here is while God says to other prophets, go and say this, Hosea's message is going to be this life-lived example of what God's people are doing. And so everything that happens in Hosea's marriage and in his family life is going to be a picture of God's people. So often God speaks through words, but now God will speak through a drama. God will speak through this literal life event. And so the question that we'll ask in many, in, throughout Hosea is what does Hosea teach us about God and his people? Often we focus so much on Hosea and the message is about Hosea and how much he loves his wife and that's great. But the major message of the text is what does Hosea and his relationship with his family teach us about God and his relationship to his people? That is the question that we will ask. And so the first point is our God is scandalous. Our God is scandalous, and this is why. He is in relationship with an adulterous woman. And he's not saying, I'm getting out of here, but he's saying, go ask them to repent. Ask them to turn to me. And so God, Yahweh, the Holy One, is in a relationship with a wife who is committing adultery with him, and he's not trying to just get out. He's begging them, repent and turn to me. And so your God... The God that we see as holy and mighty is so loving that he's asking his adulterous wife, his adulterous people, just repent. Please turn to me. Turn to me. Our God is scandalous. Also, he is a father to unfaithful children. There are two metaphors going on here in Hosea's relationship with his family. He's married to an adulterous woman. And then there are these names of the children that come out. Not my people. No pity. And so the two metaphors that are going on is a husband's relationship to his wife and then the father's relationship to his children. And God is the father to unfaithful children. Children who are not respecting him. Children who are not loving him. And we will quickly build bridges to the New Testament. Because if you notice in that first chapter, Hosea, and you'll notice this throughout the book, Hosea quickly goes to hope. Even though he talks about the judgment that com that's coming throughout the book, he quickly jumps to, but God will restore you. God will restore you. And so we want to quickly build these bridges. He's also a father to children, these unfaithful children in the New Testament. If you'll remember Luke chapter 15, there's a son who goes to his father and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Will you go ahead and give me my money now? And then he runs away and he squanders it on a reckless lifestyle. And eventually, he comes to the point when he's in such despair, he's in starvation, he's wallowing with pigs, which are despised in Jewish culture, and he says, surely, 
Surely my father will forgive me. Surely he will. And so our God throughout history is always in relationship with a people who are rebellious. He's seeking them and he's saying, repent and come to me. That's what I desire. I desire to forgive you. And so the message to us this morning, even from Jesus himself, is he desires to forgive you. No matter where you are, if you think you're a, a, a person like Gomer, if you think you're one like the prodigal son, you're never too dirty. You're never too messy. The message is repent and turn to the Lord. He desires to forgive you. Even more in the New Testament. Jesus was considered a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's in Matthew 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 19. And in Luke chapter 7, verse, uh, verses 36 through 50, there's a woman who is known in the city only as a sinner. That's her biggest designation. That's how she's known. And she comes and she begins to wipe his feet. And there's a Pharisee, a religious one, standing nearby and said, and he's thinking in his head, surely if he knew who this woman was, it, he wouldn't let her do this. And Jesus, just perceiving his thoughts, corrects him. She loves much because she has been forgiven much. Here's the truth. Our God is so gracious and forgiving that it offends the self-righteous. It offends the self-righteous. We don't see this because we often don't see God loving people like this in our own personal lives. But here's the truth. You are Gomer. We are spiritual adulterers. And he has loved you. Are you offended by God's grace? Or are you humbled by it? Because it's one or the other. It's one or the other. If you don't see yourself like this as one who has committed adultery against God, then you're not seeing the truth. You're not seeing the reality. The very truth is that our God is so scandalous and so loving that he loves those that we would consider unlovable. His mercy cannot be measured. This is seen immediately in the relationship that God tells Hosea to take on. Go marry a woman of adulteries, of fornications. So, if there's ever this question in your mind of, man, how could God tell a guy to go marry a woman who's adulterous? The question that should come into your mind after this is, how could God love me? That's the real moral question. How could God in His holiness and His greatness and His perfection, how could He come and love me? Because I am sinful. Now I'm dirty. Yet he does. He does. So the first point, our God is scandalous. Second, Israel's sins were outrageous. Outrageous. Israel was persistently disobedient and they were unrepentant. If you'll go to verse 2 of chapter 2 with me. It is no longer talking about Hosea and Gomer, but it's the, the metaphor is there, but it's actually God speaking about his people at this point. And he says, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. 
Now, from the text, you might see, say that God has offered them a divorce certificate. God says, she is not my wife and I am not her husband anymore. But look at your notes, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. We want to be very clear what's happened in the relationship between God and his people here. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. It is Israel's sins that have drove them to this point. It is Israel's sins that have divided the relationship between them and Yahweh. The covenant was not divided by God. It was divided by his people and their sinfulness. They were persistent and they were unrepentant. There was a cycle of dissatisfaction. Hosea chapter 2 verse 7. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. And she shall seek them but will not find them. Their sins are outrageous because they continue to seek them and seek them, and they're never satisfied, yet they just keep seeking them. And this is what we do sometimes, isn't it? We continue to think for some reason that the sin, if we just get a little more, that it will begin to satisfy us, but the taste, it just it, we keep going after it. We keep going after it, and it becomes a cycle of dissatisfaction. They were mentally and emotionally deceived. Hosea chapter 2 verse 8. She being Israel did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil. And who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. This is what happens when we walk in sinfulness. Is that even our thoughts begin to be twisted. We can't even think clearly. We can't think accurately. Because our lives are obsessed with sin. And we're in this cycle thinking more and more will complete us. And so Israel became deceived. And this is where they begin to trust in Assyria. As I said earlier, they're beginning to trust in these foreign nations. Thinking that will take care of them. But they're simply deceived. Because God said, if you will turn to me and repent, I will keep you. I will preserve you. Has this happened to you at all? Have you begun to think, if, if I take care of this situation, everything will be fine? I just need to take care of this when what you really need to do is turn to the Lord? You really just need to turn it over to Him? Trust Him? Are you in this cycle of dissatisfaction in your life where you're, you're just discontent? Maybe you're even miserable and unhappy. The message is for you, for you is to turn to the Lord. He is your salvation. He is your help. Ultimately, their sins were a rejection of God. Hosea 2, verse 13. I will punish her, being Israel, for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. The imagery here is so vivid. The picture God is giving is a husband who is watching her wife his, his wife prepare, him, prepare herself to go to a party. That's what Israel was doing. They were going to parties to celebrate Baal. And so the husband is watching his wife put on all this jewelry and get ready to go out to a party. Yet he's not invited. He's watching her get herself beautiful. Can you imagine this, husbands? Wives even. You watch your husband get ready to go out 
thinking you're the one that will go with them, but all of a sudden they leave and you realize you're not invited and you know exactly where they're going. They're going to commit adultery. And this is what Israel was doing. God saw them get themselves all beautied, (laughs) and then they went and committed, committed adultery at the temple with Baal. And here, we need to apply this to ourselves. As one writer says, the reader may find himself confronted by a mirror rather than a window, since Israel's sin is also humanity's and every man's. This is what we do every time we sin. We go and we commit adultery against God. We make idols in our lives. And so if you think you're not like Israel, this is exactly what we've done. Even as we studied worldliness, is there anything in your life that you've realized is more important than your own than holiness and your response to the Lord? Have you submitted yourself fully to him? Because if not, this is this is your act. This is you. Next, his justice, God's justice is necessary. His justice is necessary. Justice is God's promised outcome for sin. We talked about Leviticus 26 earlier. What God had promised to the nation of Israel for their disobedience would be destruction. He promised them that if they continued in sin, that he would destroy them, that he would punish them. And so God had to be faithful to his promises. And so if Israel continued in this sin, what was what would be the end? They would be punished. So Hosea 1.4, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And this is basically all the text is saying is a repetition of Numbers 32 where it says, be sure your sin will find you out. See, what happened is the house of Jehu had gone to the valley of Jezreel and they had killed other kings. They had gone and spilt blood of other kings. And then they took on the kingdom. And what God is saying, it's been a number of years at this time, and God is saying through Hosea, soon I will punish this kingdom for what they've done. While they think they've gotten away with their sins because it's been a number of years, their sin will find them out. And so for us, if you're continuing in some sin, thinking that you're getting away with it, your sin will find you out. There will be an end to it. And there will be a punishment. There will be consequences. So please, if you're continuing in some cycle of sin, doing the same thing, and thinking that God's not going to find you out, or other people won't, or have no consequences for your life, please stop now. The truth from the word is, your sin has consequences. God will punish sin. He must. It is his promise that he will punish sin. Hosea 2.3 Make her turn from her sin, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. And make her like a wilderness. Make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. What God would do to Israel is he would make all the agricultural things, he would make them unfruitful. They would hunger, they would thirst. And the picture is this dry valley. And their land would suffer because of their sin. Next, through justice, God reveals the truth about sin. And the truth about sin is it's self-centered and it's self-destructive. 
One writer says, sin looks best when it is barely considered, quickly indulged, and never reflected upon. The reason that the nation of Israel continued in this cycle of sin is because they never stopped and asked the question, why is this happening to us? Is our worship pleasing God? Is our covenant with Yahweh intact? Are we being faithful to it? And so I want to ask you, are you slowing down sometimes and just reflecting on your life in the context of God? Is your life pleasing to God? Is it honoring to Him? Because we can get in these habits of sinfulness and, and we living so quickly and we think these things are good for us. But again, it only looks best when it's fairly considered. Quickly indulged and never reflected upon. When you reflect on your sin, you'll realize it was not good for you. It was not good for you, nor was it good for anyone else. Next, it's never satisfying. Our sins will never be satisfying to us. This is the truth about sin. Hosea 2.6, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. And so the nation of Israel was to continue searching and continue searching and never find her way. This was God's judgment against them. And it would show them the truth. Eventually, Israel, after they were destroyed in 722 and sent away to Assyria, eventually there would be a remnant. There would be a people who would recognize that this was not good for them. The question is, will we realize that before it's too late? Will we turn to the Lord before we reap this destruction on our lives or on the lives of those around us? Augustine is a great example of this cycle of sin. St. Augustine, if you're familiar with his biography, he has a, what we would call a spiritual biography called the Confessions of St. Augustine. And Augustine was in his probably early 30s when he became a believer, but before that he lived just a, a, a rough lifestyle. He was involved with various women throughout his life, and if you read the Confessions, he talks about his struggle with lust and sexual sin, and he continued to seek after these things, and at the same time, he became involved in several religious movements because he was trying to find a way of satisfying himself. And so he became in one called Manichaeanism, and he did that for a number of years, but found it was never satisfying and couldn't explain the struggles he had with life. And eventually, St. Augustine, after much wrestling, much wrestling, and of reading the scriptures, became a believer. And at one point, St. Augustine said, and it goes well with what we're talking about here, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is the experience of his life. You have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. If you are running after sin, let me assure you. Let the word assure you. You won't find your rest in sin. You'll never find a life that you'll love in sin. It's in Christ. It's only in the Father. This is the satisfying life. This is the joyous life. And C.S. Lewis. When C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters, it's a, a play between this devil's worker 
and, and Satan. They're communicating with one another. And so we find these letters. And Lewis is writing all of this. And it's, he's talking about some of the tactics the devil uses. I want to read this to you. It's in your notes. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Read that carefully. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain and it's better style. To get the man's soul and give him nothing in return, that is what really gladdens our father's heart. And the father there is none other than Satan. This is what sin will do for you. All you will reap is destruction, no satisfaction. This is all it will do. But again, Hosea quickly, quickly gets to hope. And this is where we are in point four. His faithfulness, God's faithfulness is triumphant. And I have beside that eschatological hope. Can anybody say what eschatos means? Anybody? Studied revelation. End times. End times. Eschatos. Say that with me. End times. Eschatos. All right, good. So eschatological hope is end time hope. And the reason I put this here is not to make you think I'm smart, but because the minor prophets bring in this message of what's happening in the end times. One of the major places we find this, we could call it, some commentators have called it a lock, is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament describes the lock, and then the New Testament tells us the key. And in the Old Testament, we find these hopes of what's going to happen. And in every minor prophet, we'll be able to find some eschatological hope. And so we'll go deep into this now. First, God will send us a Savior. Hosea 1.11, and then I have this from Micah 2.13. It expresses the same thought. The one who can break through barriers will lead them out, this being God's people. After they have gone through this pattern of disobedience and God is to restore them, this is their future. The one who can break through barriers will lead them out. They will break out, pass through the gate, and leave. Their king will advance before them, the Lord himself will lead them. The one it is speaking of is a Messiah who will come and gather God's people and who will lead them out. So God will send us a Savior. The next hope, a divine reversal of things. A divine reversal of things. Hosea 2.15, there's a thing mentioned there called the Valley of Achor. It says it becomes a door of hope. Does anyone know what happened in the Valley of Achor? There's someone named Achan who was killed there. The Valley of Achor was a place of blood where the people of Israel had to to destroy a family of their own people because they had sinned. Yet God says, your memory of that place will change. The Valley of Achor will become a door of hope. God will reverse things. Next. Jezreel. The son that Hosea first named, which brought up these ideas of destruction. What happened in Jezreel was bloodbath. The kings of Israel had been destroyed there. And so while this name at first of this child has a negative connotation for Israel, what the word means is God will sow. And so in the future hope, this Jezreel is no longer a negative thing, but a positive thing. And God turns it around and says, I will sow the people again. I will raise them up. Again, a reversal. 
also Hosea 1.10. And I have there, and Romans 9.25-26. The reason is that in Romans, Hosea 1.10 is quoted exact. It says, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And I will call her who was unloved, my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Again, these names of chapter, in chapter 1 of Hosea's children, the one that God says, I will not have pity on them any longer. God, there's a divine change, reversal. And God says, I will have pity. And the one who God says, they're not my people, there's a divine reversal. And he says, they are my people. And the very beautiful thing that it's used in the book of Romans is this is where God is opening up his covenant, not just to Jews, but to all children of Abraham, to all those who have faith in Yahweh and his son, Jesus Christ. This is the messianic hope. This is the hope that he will send one and that he will gather his people together. Next, God's faithfulness will per permanently restore our intimacy. Hosea 2, verses 19 through 20. This is in your notes. God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God again brings in this marriage analogy and God is the husband and he goes and in ancient times the the one who wanted to marry the daughter went to the father and had to pay a bridal price to get the daughter uh, betrothed to him and so here we see that the Lord is the one who pays the bridal price he comes and he says I will betroth you to me and I'm going to give you these qualities what was the problem between God and Israel was it that God couldn't be faithful no, it was that the people couldn't be faithful. And so the end of this promise is, God says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And so that problem of us never being able to be faithful to the Lord, of Israel not being able to be faithful, is God says, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to bring you to myself. I'm going to betroth you to myself in righteousness and in faithfulness. And so God fixes it, and the covenant is permanent. And this is why one writer says, three things are made very plain here. The permanence of this union, the intimacy of it, and the fact that it owes everything to God. God is the one who comes. He is the one who pays the bridal price. And he is the one who brings us to himself. This is the picture. Then, in the closing of chapter 3, Hosea models for us God's message of salvation. All of chapter 2 is about God and his people. God and his people. And in this small section, the small chapter 3, this is the last time that Hosea and his wife will be mentioned the rest of the book. The rest of the book. What God has done between his relationship with he and his people, he tells Hosea to do the same. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loved the children of Israel, though they turned to other gods and loved cakes of raisins. So I bought her 
for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in latter days. This shows the extreme lengths that our God goes to to save us. While we sell ourselves into slavery, he comes and he pays our price. And pulls us out. This is what our God has done for us. We've sold ourselves into slavery to sin. Yet he sent his son. And he paid the price. So that we could be with him. So that we can be with him. The nation of Israel. What would happen where it says. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore. Belong to another man. So will I also be to you. But the children of Israel shall dwell many days. Without king or prince. Without sacrifice or pillar. All these things. The nation of Israel would be sent into Assyria. They would not have the kingship. They would not have the religion. They would not even be a nation anymore. In a sense, the covenant felt like it was entirely broken. Entirely gone. But God says, afterward the children of Israel shall return. And seek the Lord their God and David their king. This is the eschatological hope. This is the end time hope. See, David their king... David, their Messiah, as Jesus comes in Matthew and he's in the line of David. And he's the master of David. He is before David, before Abraham was, I am. He is our hope. This is what Hosea is pointing towards. The day that we will be restored. And so even now, the message is that Jesus with his death and his resurrection has broken over, broken out, and we're in part of the end times. We call it the now and the not yet. Because we're there, but we're still waiting. And he will come again, and he will restore us to himself fully. To himself fully. And so the message of Hosea some application questions. Are you offended by God's grace or are you humbled by it? Again, we are all Gomer. We are all these children who have gone astray. Where are you in this? God's grace is great. Are you miserable miserable because of sin in your life? This is meant to lead you to repentance. Are you in a cycle of continuing to seek it and thinking that it's going to leave you satisfied eventually? The message is repentance. And for you who think your life is too messy, for you who think that God can't clean you up, the deep message of Hosea is God's grace cannot be measured. It cannot be measured. He desires to clean you up. He desires for you to turn to Him. And the very practical message that Hosea teaches us as he himself goes to his wife and buys her back is, have you put limits on your own willingness to forgive? Or is your life a display of God's forgiveness of your sins? Let us remember what Jesus said. 
if you cannot forgive others, neither will your Father forgive you. Neither will your Father forgive you. So at this time, I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward. And I do want to provide a time for anyone to come forward who would like to pray or talk on these things. I'm going to ask Mr. Allen T. to come forward in just a minute. Dr. David's not here with us today. But if you think you're too dirty, if you think you're too messed up, please listen to the message of Hosea. Your life can't be too messed up. God desires you to repent and to turn. For those of you who are in a cycle of sinfulness and you find yourself never being satisfied, God's message to you is, I am life and I am joy forevermore. Turn to me. And for those of you who are unwilling to forgive, do you know God's forgiveness? God's forgiveness is not measurable. Why is yours? We as the church body must be willing to forgive one another whatever grievances and outside of this place. This is how we exalt Christ and exalt the gospel that he's given to us. So, if you would like to pray, I want to ask you that in a few moments that you would come forward. If you would like to say, how do I know this God? How do I be in relationship to him? You can come forward. If you don't want to come forward, then we're definitely here for after. Anytime you want to talk, we are available. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the message of Hosea. Thank you, Lord, that it shows us your deep love. God, thank you that you do judge sin. Lord, you show us that it's not good, Lord, for your glory nor for us. Lord, thank you that you seek us out. Lord, that you sent your son, that you may bring us to yourself. Thank you for the hope that we have, Father, that we will be with you, that we will dwell with you forever, Father, and that this union is permanent because you have given us your faithfulness. You have given us your righteousness. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Make these things clear in our heart. Thank you for this time to reflect on your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.